So we're uh, continuing our discussion of Simon Dong's individuation in the light of notions of form and, and information. We're just finishing up chapter one of part one, and then we're going to begin chapter two. So we're right at the top of page 53 of the translation. So we've been seeing in chapter one as a whole, the, the criticism of the hylomorphic schema, um, why it's inadequate, and using that criticism of the hylomorphic schema as a, sort of a launching point for the development of a, a more adequate uh, account of individuation. And we'll see more of that, of that more adequate account in the next chapter. The last little bit of this, of the first chapter that we're going to read today is about methodology. Simon Don comparing his methodology with other approaches to individuation. Okay, so I can start reading. Uh, I'll read a couple of paragraphs here and then we'll go, go around as usual. The essential difference between the classical study of individuation and what we are presenting here is the following. Individuation will not be considered solely from the perspective of the explanation of the individuated individual. It will be grasped, or at the very least, we will say that it should be grasped, before and during the genesis of the separate individual. Individuation is an event and an operation within a reality that is richer than the individual that results from it. Furthermore, the separation initiated by the individuation within the system cannot lead to the, to the individual's isolation. Individuation, then, is the structuration of a system without a separation of the individual and its complementary, such that individuation introduces a new, system, a new regime of the system, but does not break the system. In this case, the individual must be known, not ab abstractly, but by going back to the individuation, i.e. by going back to the state starting from which it is possible to genet genetically grasp the entire reality of which the individual and its complement of being is composed. The principle of the method that we are proposing consists in supposing that there is a conservation of being and that thinking cannot occur except starting from a complete reality. This is why it is necessary to consider the, the transformation of a complete domain of being all the way from the state that precedes the individuation up to the state that follows or extends it. This method does not seek to diminish the consistency of the individual being, but merely, sorry, but merely to grasp it in the system of concrete being in which its genesis takes place. If the individual is not grasped in this complete systematic ensemble of being, it is treated according to equally improper and divergent paths. Either it becomes an absolute and is conflated with the sunalon, or it is reduced to the being in its totality so much that it loses its consistency and is treated as an illusion. Indeed, the individual is not a complete reality, nor does the individual continue to have the entirety of nature as its complementary, in front of which it would become an inferior reality. The individual's complementary is a reality on the same order as its own, like the being of a pair relative to the other being with which it is paired. At the very least, it is, th it is through the intermediary of this associated milieu that the being is attached back to what is larger than it and to what is smaller than it. So he's continuing with his, um, his thesis of the relativity of the individual. So the individual is only uh, one part of, uh, of the reality that results from individuation. So we have the total reality, the, the sunolon the, uh, in the original states um, that then undergoes a process of individuation and that results in an individual but also in the associated milieu. Um, so the individual taken uh, on its own is only a partial reality. And so uh, the method that he is proposing here is one that would start from the complete reality and, and uh, bring about the process of individuation in that reality, um, rather than starting from the already individuated individual, which is only uh, a partial reality. 
Uh, one thing that confuses me a little bit about this section, and I think he says it again on the next page, is the idea that the pre-individual milieu is on the same order of magnitude as the individual. I think this relates to the footnote that Alyosha just posted. But um, I don't know if that means that uh, the the order of magnitude that's on the same level of the individual, is that just the level of the communication between the two different orders of magnitude? Um, I, oh yeah, I'm not sure. Um, so yeah, so the first thing I would say is we need to um, distinguish between the um, the pre-individual being or the, the total reality before individuation uh, on the one hand, and then the, um, the milieu um, that results from the process of individuation on the other hand. Um, so the, those are, are not the same thing. He, uh, he points that out, uh, I think, on the next page or, or um, anyway, somewhere in this, in this section, he points out that um, we need to distinguish between those two. Um, so there is, uh, within nature, there are, there are um, uh, domains that, are, uh, that precede individuation, and then there are domains that are... Um, the associated milieu of an individuation process, but are not themselves individuated. Um, um, but yeah, so with that uh, in mind, um, it's it's the the second one that is um, um, uh, that is complementary to the individual, and so it's at the same uh, order of magnitude. So it's the associated milieu after the process of individuation that is uh, at the same order of magnitude as the uh, individual. Um, uh, and so that, um, yeah, and, and that process of individuation comes about in uh, a structured system that, that contains the multiple orders of magnitude in which the individuation proceeds as a, as a mediation. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think I think we can consider that um, uh, the associated milieu at the same order of magnitude as um, as um, uh, sorry, I forgot the exact wording that you used, but um, as uh, consisting in that um, mediation between orders of magnitude uh, between the, the lower and the the higher order of magnitude. The way I'm reading uh, part of this. So there's a bit in the first paragraph. Individuation then is the structuration of a system without a separation of the individual and its complementary, such that individuation introduces a new regime of the system but does not break the system. And uh, I think, Non, you were basically expanding on that just now. Um, I guess I'm thinking of, so in, in social sciences, I think they talk about units of analysis right? Like, what's your unit of analysis? And, you know, in some, some sciences, it's the individual level, some sciences, it's the social level, or maybe like uh, an organizational level or whatever. And it seems to me that for Simon Don is, part of what he's saying here is the unit of analysis always needs to be the system. Like, we always need to talk about the system as a whole, even if we're not, you know, uh, we may be looking at just a region of it, but every property is ultimately a systemic property. Uh, you know, you don't have any genuinely individual 
properties, but individuality kind of grows out of this systemic, you know, the system of relations and potentialities and so on. Yeah, so to to expand on that a little bit, like um, if you wanted to look at these different um, um, uh, levels of analysis, um, you know, the individual level or the organization or or um, a social level or something like that, uh, for Simon Don, in order to be able to do that, you would have to start from the complete reality uh, or the the system as a whole out of which those levels of analysis um, emerge. So uh, you can only look at an individual level of reality or an individual level of analysis if you uh, start from the, the system as a whole in which that individual emerges. Um, um, and, and, and so, yeah, it's uh, hmm, what, uh, what relationship that has to structuralism. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, I would say, um, hmm, I, I think, I mean, and structuralism means so many different things. It, it's hard to say exactly, but um, um, I think the uh, emphasis on the uh, genetic or, or dynamic nature of the, the structuration in Simondon is uh, different than most um, systems that would be described as structuralist Um so it's not that there is a um, a sort of pre-existing system that uh, that orders um, all the um, entities uh, into a, a sort of grid or something like that. Um, it's the the system itself undergoes transformation, uh, resulting in an individual and its associated milieu um, or or whatever level of analysis or order of magnitude that we're we're dealing with. Yeah, one thing I was going to say in response to what Angus was saying earlier, I'm trying to look for the quotes, um, and I don't know if this would help, but when we think about the individual milieu thing, he talks about them being constituted simultaneously out of a splitting of the Sunuan. And there's other places where he talks about the milieu having been robbed of the individual, which I think is a slightly different framing. But I think in either case, it might be helpful to think of it like uh, any time we're you know, this thing of like an inferior reality looking at this larger reality that it is supposedly alienated from, like nature. Uh, I think that's the example he gave here. That whenever that's, it's like we're, it's this problem of relating to seemingly given terms that, that he, he's saying, but like the milieu, the, basically the way I understand it, and I, I wonder if this will be tested by our reading, but the way I understand it is if the milieu and the individual are sort of constituted simultaneously, it's because the kind of milieu that comes into being without the, the without the individual in a sense in, in the sense of the individual seeming to have broken off from it is fundamentally different from the you know what we would think of as like the pre-saturated the, the supersaturated solution filled with potentials in a, in a pre-individual non-phase state you know so so that kind of milieu is fundamentally different from the milieu after which structuration begins and then there's individual in some kind of individuality in relation with some kind of milieu that's sort of how i'm approaching and i wonder if, if that helps or or hinders i don't i don't want to put you all um, too much off track because i'm not very far into the simondon text but um what was just described actually reminded me more of like um a systems theory approach than like luman actually um, rather than um, French structuralism. 
And um, I found that interesting in, in this, uh, particularly because I know um, in, in the, uh, the reception and the social sciences of Simondon more through like Latour, who positions Simondon then um, more or less against uh, the Luhmannian approach, um, specifically in the sense that he says that Luhmann had the right idea with his systems theory, but um, the problem is um, trying to um, reduce everything to one kind of system or one kind of logic behind the systems and one one systematization instead of um, understanding the process of doing social science itself as um, one of the modes of structuration um, that happens in the whole, more or less. Or you, you wouldn't say the whole because the whole is a bit of a problematic category there, but... Um, in 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 the process of 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 what's happening in society. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I didn't realize that um, Latour had had written about Simondon, um, but uh, yeah, I'll have to check that out. Oh yeah, Simondon is an, is um, a pretty prominent reference for him. I think specifically when he talks about uh, like in uh, in. Um, reassembling the social where he talks about um, social scientific methodology and the status of the social sciences um, that he's drawing extensively on Simondon. Okay, so I think we can continue with the next um, little bit, uh, the next couple paragraphs if someone else would like to read. In a certain sense, there is a complete opposition between Leibniz's monad and Spinoza's individual, because Leibniz's world is composed of individuals, whereas Spinoza's world includes, properly speaking, only a single individual, nature. But this opposition, in fact, arises from the individual's lack of relativity with respect to a complementary reality of the same order of its own. Leibniz fragments individu individuation down to the extreme limits of smallness, thereby according even individuality to the smallest elements of a living body. Conversely, Spinoza expands individuation all the way to including the limits of the whole, that through which God is naturing nature, that is, individuation itself. There is no mention in either the work of Spinoza or Leibniz regarding a relation of the individual to an associated familia, no mention of a system on the same order of magnitude within which the individual can receive a genesis. The individual is mistaken for the being and is considered as coextensive with being. Under these conditions, the individual is considered as coextensive. Uh, the individual, oh, sorry. Under these conditions, the individual considered as coextensive with the being cannot be situated. All reality is simultaneously too small and too large to receive the status of the of individual. Everything can be individual and nothing can be fully individual. On the contrary, if the individual is grasped not as the term of a relation, but as the result of an operation and as the theater of a relational activity perpetuated in it. It is, it is defined with respect to the ensemble it constitutes with its complement, which is at the same order of magnitude as it, and on the same level as it after individuation. Nature in its entirety is not composed of individuals and is not itself an individual. It is composed of domains of being that can or cannot harbor individuation. 
In nature, there are two modes of reality that are not those of the individual. Domains that have not been the theater of an individuation and what remains of a concrete domain after the individuation when the individual is subtracted. These two types of reality cannot be conflated, for the first designates a complete reality, whereas the second designates an incomplete reality that can only be explained by genesis, i.e. based on the system from which it emerges. If we propose to know the individual relative to the systematic ensemble in which its genesis occurs, we discover that there is a function of the individual with respect to the concrete system envisioned according to its becoming. Individuation expresses a phase change of the being of this system, thereby avoiding its degradation. Incorporating the energetic potentials of this system as structures, making antagonisms compatible, and resolving the internal conflict of the system. Individuation perpetuates the system through a topological and energetic change. The veritable identity is not the identity of the individual relative to itself, but the identity of the system's concrete permanence throughout its phases. The true hexiety is a functional hexiety, and the origin of finality lies in this underpinning of the hexiety that it translates into an oriented functionality into an amplifying mediation between orders of magnitude initially without communication. Thus, in terms of providing an adequate knowledge of the conditions and process of physical individuation, the insufficiency of the matter-form relation leads us to analyze the role played by potential energy in the operation of individuation insofar as this energy is the condition of metastability. Right, so um, the reference to Spinoza and Leibniz here, these are um, sort of two complementary errors uh, for Simon Dong um, that both uh, derive from uh, not um, not grasping the individual as relative to an associated milieu. Um, so treating the individual as uh, coextensive with being. Um, and so on the one hand, uh, Leibniz um, takes every takes the every um, particle of matter to be an, an individual. Um, uh, so brings individuality down to the extreme limits of smallness. Um, and, and then on the other hand, Spinoza treats nature as a whole, as an individual, uh, and as the only individual. Um, uh, and in each case, the um, the the error derives from uh, not granting or not recognizing um, that uh, aspect of, of reality that is the associated milieu um, um, that that results from the process of individuation and is, is coordinate with the individual. So one thing I'm very curious about here, this is just jumping almost at the very end, um, but uh, the, the point he makes about finality. Um, so this is the second to last paragraph last sentence uh, the origin of finality lies in this underpinning of the hexiety that it translates into an oriented functionality into an amplifying mediation between orders of magnitude initially without communication and uh, I think it's I mean um, I'm trying to understand exactly how finality works here because I think that uh, sort of the dualism that Non was, was mentioning, Leibniz and Spinoza, I think often it's put in terms of final causes, right? Leibniz was very big on final causes. 
And he thought, you know, these monads, each one has a kind of internal teleology. Um, and I think he calls it an entelechy, and then they all kind of connect through God and so on. And I think Spinoza is often read as actually denying final causality altogether. Um, and it kind of sounds to me like maybe um, Simon Don is looking for some kind of middle position here. Uh, and I'm trying to understand exactly how, like, how do we get final causes out of the individuation process? Because it seems like we do, right? There's some kind of oriented functionality. Yeah, this bit is pretty um, compressed, I would say. It, it's uh, it's sort of alluding to developments that we'll see in the later, uh, in part two of the book on vital individuation. Um, but... Um, I think what he has in mind here um, is his criticism of uh, cybernetics and uh, in general to mechanistic approaches to the living being, um, which is basically that, um, uh, and I think we've seen uh, some reference to this as well, um, but basically the, the criticism is that um, you can analyze the functioning of various uh, organs or or. Uh, components of a living being uh, in mechanistic terms or, or modeled, modeled them uh, on the functioning of machines. Um, but that doesn't give an account of the uh, setting up of the, the whole uh, living being uh, uh, as a whole um, in the first place. Um, so unlike machines, uh, living beings um, uh sort of structure themselves, they, they bring themselves into being um, um, and uh, all the sort of mechanical components of a living being are the results of, the, of that living being itself. Um, and um, yeah, so there's something like uh, a finality or uh, um, goal directedness in that, um, uh, um, in that individuation process of a living being. Um, but um, we'll have to wait till we get to part two to, um, to have a, a better under, understanding of, of how that works, I think. Do, do you think finality could also be understood as like the sort of the completed stable system in a sense, or of like the, what we perceive as this given individual with a clear relationship with some external thing you know that, that it, it, the reason it's perceived as final he's saying rather than it being the actual final result of something it is sort of the resolution of a problematic that i suppose in, in non-living individuation that does obviously end at some point but at least as insofar as living individuation goes it it, it doesn't actually ever end so i don't, I don't know if that's you know I'm, I'm not as familiar with Leibniz, so i don't i couldn't speak on the final call because he kind of speaks of it in terms of hexaity oriented towards functionality i was kind of thinking about his earlier point of you know the, the conservation of being in becoming the conservation of it through this process so it's sort of you know almost as though it behooves it for it not to be uh final like it, it it's just the end of one phase of the process i guess is how i'm seeing it yeah i think i think the term finality here um does have uh, a connection with the the concept of final causes. Yeah, I think it's it's right that he's he's 
trying to find some sort of middle ground between, um, between I guess, a Spinozist and a, a Leibnizian position on final causes. Um, so he doesn't want to say that um, there is no such thing as, as finality, but he wants to um, uh, sort of relativize it. Um, uh, it. It's relative to um, a living individual um, and, uh, and the process of vital individuation. Um, but yeah, like, as I said, we're going to have to um, wait till we get to part two to, uh, to see this in more detail. It seems to me like the, uh, he's treating the milieu in an important sense as a final cause, right? And, uh, and definitely it would be relative, like it wouldn't be like an absolute final cause the way you have in the, you know, in some kind of idealism or like Arist Aristotelian thinking. Um, but um, I'm also thinking of the, um, uh, to mention quickly, uh, the, the other book, uh, The Mode of Being of Technical Objects, uh, towards the end um, of that book, he kind of, you know, gives a sort of broad, lots of broad level discussion. And he does talk about a kind of unity that is seeking to reestablish itself. You know, you really get the sense of a kind of circle that seeks to close itself. And the closure is probably never complete, you know, but, um, but he will talk the language of unity and of a kind of, you know, like seeking to reestablish a kind of original harmony. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's pretty dialectical in that sense, but I mean, he doesn't want to call it dialectical. Uh, so it's interesting to me how he's sort of on the border between, you know, um, these different you know, what we see in, let's say, phenomenology, which is which is still pretty Aristotelian, like Merleau-Ponty, and then going forward to, like, somebody like Deleuze. And it seems like Simon Donis may be s sort of like a transitional figure there. Yeah, I think that makes sense um, in terms of the, the history. Um, I, I, I just, uh, I think you're right about the, the history. I think um, Simon Don is... Uh, uh, trying to preserve some notion of um, final causes, um, but in a way that doesn't um, that doesn't make final causality uh, something some sort of separate domain of of existence in the way that um, it it can be in in like the Leibnizian uh, approach, for example. Um, so yeah. Um, it's something we'll have to watch out for and, and try to understand better as we go along. And I think we can uh, move on to the, the second chapter now. So if someone else would like to read, um, I believe we have one of these. Oh, it's not that long. So yeah, the first medium long paragraph there, if someone could uh, read that for us. I'll read it. Chapter two, form and energy, structures and potential energy, the potential energy and the reality of the system, equivalence of potential energies dissymmetry, and energetic exchanges. The notion of potential energy in physics is not absolutely clear and does not correspond to a rigorously defined extension. Thus, it would be difficult to specify if the thermal energy in stored in a heated body should be considered as potential energy. Its potential nature is bound to a possibility of the system's transformation through the modification of its energetic state. A body whose every molecule would possess the same quantity of energy in the form of thermal agitation would not possess any quantity of thermal potential energy. Indeed, the body would thus have attained its most stable state. 
Conversely, a body that would possess the same total quantity of heat, but in such a manner that this quantity would be in one region of molecules at a higher temperature and in another region of molecules at a lower temperature, would possess a certain quantity of thermal potential energy. Furthermore, this quantity of potential energy cannot be considered as eventually added to the non-potential energy contained in the body. This quantity is a fraction of the total energy of the body that can give rise to a transformation, whether reversible or not. This relativity of potential that characterizes energy becomes manifest clearly if it is supposed, for example, that a body heated homogeneously, and thus not possessing any thermal potential energy if it is the sole body constituting a system, can manage to make a potential energy appear if it is put into contact with another body of a different temperature. The capacity for an energy to be potential is strictly linked to the presence of a heterogeneity, i.e. of dissymmetry relative to another energetic support. By resuming the preceding example, we can indeed consider a particularly demonstrative borderline case. If a body were heated in such a way that it contains certain molecules at a higher temperature and others at a lower temperature, and if these molecules are not grouped in two separate regions but mixed together randomly, for a microphysical observer, the body would still contain the same quantity of potential energy when the molecules are grouped in a hot region as in a cold region, because the sum of potential energies presented by all the couplings formed by a hot molecule and a cold molecule would be numerically equal to the potential energy presented by the system formed by the group all the hot molecules and the group of all the cold molecules. Nevertheless, this sum of potential energies of the molecular pairs would not correspond to any physical reality, to any potential energy of the overall system. For this to happen, it would be necessary to organize the disorder by separating the hot molecules from the cold molecules. This is what the hypothesis of Maxwell's demon shows extremely well, which is taken up, back up and discussed by Norbert Wiener in his cybernetics. The attentive consideration of the type of reality represented by potential energy is quite instructive for the determination of a method adapted to the discovery of individuation. Indeed, reflecting on potential energy teaches us that there is an order of reality that we can grasp neither through the consideration of a quantity, nor through the consideration of a quality, nor by resorting to a simple formalism. Potential energy is not a simple way of seeing, an arbitrary consideration of the mind. It instead corresponds to a capacity of real transformations in a system, and the very nature of the system is more than an arbitrary grouping of beings operated by thought, because, for an object, the fact of belonging to a system defines for this object the possibility of mutual actions relative to the other objects that constitute the system, a possibility which ensures that the belonging to a system is defined by a virtual reciprocity of actions between the terms of the system. But the reality of potential energy is not that of an object or a substance consisting in itself and having no need of anything else in order to exist. Indeed, it requires a system, i.e. at least another term. No doubt we must struggle against the habit that leads us to grant the highest degree of being to substance conceived as absolute reality, i.e. reality without relation. Relation is not a pure epiphenomenon. It is convertible into substantial terms, and this conversion is reversible, like that of potential energy into actual energy. I just have a quick question. Maybe it can help us get started with this long bit. I'm just thinking earlier about when he's discussing the plasticity in the clay, and he's talking about the homogeneity of the colloidal properties. Um, but he's also saying that, that um, in that case, which I know is different from this, that the, there's a required homogeneity for there to even be an inter internal resonance in the first place. And then here he's talking about uh, the need for a heterogeneity. I, I don't actually think these are contradictory, but I know I'm missing a link somewhere. Um, because I remember I was struggling earlier with the uh, homogeneity of the, of the clay thing, because I would have thought 
he would have gone for heterogeneity there, but he but he very explicitly went for homogeneity. Is is there anyone who might be able to help distinguish the difference between these cases? Yeah, uh, I think I think Angus's comment in the chat there is right. I think in the the clay and brick system, you have a heterogeneity between the two orders of magnitude, um, which uh, is what allows for work to occur um, in the system uh, for uh, a transformation to come about. Um, uh, and then the homogeneity is necessary for the uh, transmission of forces across the system. So in the case of the, um, in the case of the, the uh, heated object that he's describing here, you, you have the heterogeneity is um, the difference in temperature, um, but then there's still a homogeneity in the sense that um, there's a transmission of heat across the body. Um, so the, the body is um, uh, structured in such a way that uh, heat can be transmitted from one end of the body to the other. Um, so yeah, the, those two sides, the, the heterogeneity and the homogeneity are both going to be present in any system, but in, in different respects or in different ways. Right. So, so then in that case, it's sort of like uh, a, to a topological homogeneity or like we talked, I think we talked about surfaces, maybe not in the strict literal definition, but like the homogeneity of creating a, a space or a field in which like you said, something like the heat could be distributed equally across the body. But then the heterogeneity, I think here it's saying that relative to another energetic support. So d does that kind of correspond to, to the orders of magnitude thing that you're saying? Yeah, so the, the, the homogeneity is, is the, the necessary condition for there to be a system as a whole. Um, so in the case of the... Uh, the clay and the brick, uh, the clay and the molds, it's the, the plasticity of the clay that transmits force um, is, is the necessary condition for there to be a system. Uh, in the case of the heated body, it's the um, conducts, I believe is the term, uh, across the, the, the whole body. Um, so whereas if you have one body separated from another by an insulator, um, then the two don't form a system with respect to heat. So it's it, it's always the, the homogeneity is, is the necessary condition um, for for there to be a system in the first place, um, and then the heterogeneity is what's necessary for there to be um, the capacity of transformation in that system. It sounds like maybe um, this is getting also to the uh, the difference between um, what he would think of uh, as matter and what would be energy, because. Um, so the first chapter was called form and matter, right? And now we have form and energy. And it seems like matter would somehow be akin or would would have to be homogenous in some sense. Um, and then we don't have energy unless we have this heterogeneity between two orders or an energetic potential. Yeah, I think that's right. Um... Um, I was also going to mention here that he's he's um, pursuing his uh, criticism of uh, substantialism uh, or the, the notion of substance. Um, um, and so he has um, he has Descartes in mind here um, that that little bit in quotes um, where he says having no need of anything else in order to exist is, is from Descartes. Um, 
I think the meditations, if I remember correctly. Um, but um, um, yeah, so it's the idea uh, that um, substance is the highest form of reality or, or the exclusive form of reality, and uh, um, and relation is uh, is uh, like a um, degenerate form of reality. That's the the notion that he's criticizing here in this passage. Um, in a, so he's giving a new argument for that criticism uh, through the use of, of the notion of potential energy, which is always relative to uh, a system. Yeah, I had to look up the whole Maxwell's demon personally, and maybe other folks are more well-educated than myself, but the, this thought experiment regarding the separation of molecules, and I thought it was interesting because I, through reading about the background, it kind of made sense why Simondon had brought this up, because... There's this whole idea of, okay, how, how if I'm not going to profess to understand it fully, but the, the thought experiment is about a potential way to sort of like break the, the second law of thermodynamics or whatever. Um, because if, if you actually had this system with this, this demon able to separate the molecules, um, something happens. I would love for someone to explain it to me. But one of the, the interesting observations that I saw from reading that background is that there was, you know, back and forth critiques of this thought experiment and you know, lots of different people over the years have, have had their responses, but one of the common, and I think one of the responses that Simone is kind of channeling here, the problem of measurement, right? So the idea in this thought experiment is that the demons, this has somehow measure, is, is able to, to tell which molecules are what, like this is a hot molecule, this is a cold molecule, I'm going to let these ones through because the hot ones are faster and these cold ones in here because they're slower. And the the problem with this is that the, the demon has to have a way of measuring those properties in order to be able to determine those things. So then the thought experiment kind of doesn't exactly work or do, do exactly what it says from what I understand, because uh, you know, that if you don't account for the, it, it, it's like sort of the topological information thing that someone has talked about before, there has to be a measuring implies interacting with the energies in the system in order to, you know, in order to know them or to understand what they're doing transductively, you might even say. So again, I, I'm sorry for that being garbled, but I just thought that if anyone has more on Maxwell's demon, I thought that might be helpful as well. Yeah, that's a, a good point uh, to bring that up. Um, and, and so as, as Angus has, has um, uh, mentioned in, in the chat here, um, the, the sort of the, the points or, or the, the, counterintuitive results of the the thought experiment is that if you could have something like this Maxwell's demon that could um, separate the the hot and the cold uh, or high energy and low energy particles then you could um, sort of reverse the course of time um, you could take a, a system that is homogeneous and have it turn into a heterogeneous system that could then perform work again um, and so you could have a perpetual motion machine, basically, um, that would uh, um, uh, perform work and then uh, separate out the, the uh, high and low energy particles again and then perform work again and so on. Um, so, yeah, that would violate uh, the second law of thermodynamics. And, uh, um, yeah, you're right that the, the general critique of this uh, is that... Um, the Maxwell's demon would have to, um, the, the, the demon creature would have to um, perform work in order to uh, measure and separate the particles in the first place. Um, and so 
um, there would there be no way to um, uh, to um, have the system as a whole, including the demon, um, uh, separate out uh, high and low energy states. Um, it would it would be um, uh, there has to be an input of energy in order for uh, that separation to happen, um, and and so you can't um, you can't produce a, a perpetual motion machine through this uh, uh, procedure. Right, and I think that's what uh, that passage from Wikipedia that you posted there, Alyosha, is uh, is mentioning that once you take account, take the the demon into account uh, as part of the system uh, because it's interacting with the particles, um, then the the total entropy of the system as a whole uh, is increasing. Even though uh, if you only look at the um, the particle and not the demon, then you can you would see a, a local uh, um, decrease of entropy. I wonder if that's helpful for us overall, because even, even the image I pasted there from Wikipedia, it's like it's as though relation is typically talked about in a way where th this demon is precisely this thing relating these two sides of these two terms. And it's, it's, it's a sort of non-essential part of this, this systemic relation. It's just something that is a line between them, and it's not intrinsically affecting them in any way but i think that's what he'll kind of go into in this chapter that this idea of the three term the rapport of the three terms that there's not there's not really such thing as just kind of two terms relating without there being some other kind of support um and i don't know if it's reaching as well but i just wanted to mention what i, I was saying before in chat that like this is why i really liked his point about functional hexaity that it almost seems to connect back to his idea of transduction and transductive knowledge as well, that like there is no uh, way of partaking in in the hexity of a thing of apprehending it in a, in a non-functional way. I don't, I don't just mean that socially either. I mean in the sense of sort of like to apprehend it and to, to begin to parse what it does is sort of, it, it's sort of similar to that process where there's, there's no, there's no measuring that does not involve, uh, you know, being put into relation with this larger system between individual milieu and all this stuff that like, uh, I guess that's what it is as, as a philosophical move. That's what transduction is supposed to be or transductive knowledge is to making, taking the veil away from that operation and making it apparent. But, uh, but just that, yeah, the, the thing that appears to us like it's hexate or it's quiddity is precisely that because of our, our functional relationship with it rather than just a, a sort of base observation. I just think that's really interesting. Yeah, and importantly also at the same time, uh, so even though the these notions like potential energy are relative to a system, um, they, aren't, um, uh, they aren't any less real because of that. So there's a, a real um, uh, uh, possibility of transformation in a system which is not dependent on our, our knowledge of the system, um, but it, it's, so it's relative to the system, but it's not um, uh, it's not relative to our knowledge of the system, um, uh, so it's not any less real. Um, so yeah, I think that's uh, uh, it's, it's sort of a difficult concept to um, uh, or a different a different mindset to uh, to put yourself into to try to grasp uh, relations as having the status of reality, as, as he puts it. Um, and, and trying to hold on to the, the reality of these relative concepts. To go back to the uh, historical point uh, a bit, uh, Leibniz and Spinoza, it seems like 
they both make the same mistake, which is that they don't really understand this uh, relation that is not a pure epiphenomenon. Uh, so I guess they do it in different ways, like Leibniz goes down to the very small, right? The monads and Spinoza goes, goes up to like the totality, right? The one nature. Um, but it seems like, uh, and maybe a question like, is this the way to think of it that really, um, they, in a way, uh, the heterogeneity is between those two orders, it seems like. It is between the small and the large. Um, I think Angus has been bringing that up with like the disparate orders. Um, and I wonder if, in, in a sense, like to get to where Simondon wants to be, you kind of need both Leibniz and Spinoza. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, uh, so they're both, uh, they, they make... Uh, Spinoza and Leibniz make the uh, sort of complementary errors, um, which both result from that incapacity to um, grasp the individual as relative to an associated milieu, and and therefore um, an, an incapacity to grasp um, something uh, as both relative and real. Um, um, and so Leibniz will, will just um, deny that there are relations at all. Each, each monad is, is self-contained. It has no windows, uh, as he uh, puts it. Um, and then Spinoza will um, um, sort of incorporate everything into one uh, individual. Uh, so there's no, there's no relation uh, in that sense either. Um, uh, but um, yeah, so that's uh, a good way of putting it, I think, uh, is trying to um, uh, grasp both of them at the same time, uh, both Leibniz and Spinoza at the same time. Right. So it sounds like they both, um, they want a, a kind of homogeneity. Uh, they don't want to, you know, um, it seems like there's something about heterogeneity that's just difficult, you know, and that philosophers are generally kind of allergic to and it seems like you know spinoza wants the the heterogeneous one of nature and leibniz wants this sort of uh sorry the homogeneous one and with leibniz is similar but on the small scale and um uh yeah that that's that's kind of making sense to me right um so i think we can go on to the next uh, couple paragraphs and start talking about uh pendulums and uh, how they work. So I, I can read uh, the next couple paragraphs here. Uh, and there's diagrams too, for, for those of you who uh, aren't looking at the text right now, uh, there, there are some diagrams in the text that are helpful as well. Uh, so you can see those on, on my stream. If a distinction of terms is useful for determining the results of the analysis of significations, relation can be called the arrangement of the elements of a system that has a scope surpassing a simple arbitrary view of the mind. And we can reserve the term of rapport for an arbitrary, fortuitous relation that is not convertible into substantial terms. Relation would be a rapport just as real and important as the terms themselves. Consequently, it could be said that a veritable relation between two terms is in fact equivalent to a rapport among three terms. We shall begin with this postulate. Individuation requires a true relation, a relation that can only be given in a system state that envelops a potential. The consideration of potential energy is not merely useful insofar as it teaches us to think the reality of relation. It also offers us a possibility of measure through the method of reciprocal convertibility. 
For example, let's consider a series of increasingly complicated pendulums, and let's attempt to note the transformations of energy of which they are the source during a period of oscillation. We shall see that we can confirm not only the convertibility of potential energy into kinetic energy, then into potential energy, which is converted back into kinetic energy, but also the equivalence of two different forms of potential energy that are converted into one another through a determinate quantity of kinetic energy. First, take for example a simple pendulum labeled OM that oscillates in the Earth's gravitational field, figure one. If A is the point of the trajectory closest to the center of the Earth, and if B and C are the extreme symmetrical positions relative to the axis OA, the potential energy is at a minimum in A and the kinetic energy is at a maximum. Conversely, in B and C, the potential energy is maximum while the kinetic energy is minimum. If the horizontal plane passing through point A is taken as an equipotential surface of reference, and the axes of mobile coordinates with respect to point O are considered as a system of reference for measuring the displacement of the axes of immobile coordinates, it could be said that potential energy is null in A and kinetic energy null in B and C. These two forms of energy are thus transformed into one another completely, at least if we neglect the degradation of energy caused by friction. Now, let's take the case of a pendulum like the one constructed by Holbeck and Leger that enabled the establishment of the gravimetric network in France, uh, figure two. The lower part of this pendulum is made of an elastic wire encased in Elinvar, and the upper portion involves a chunk of quartz. The connected pieces are placed in the vacuum tube in order to reduce damping. The operative principle at work here is the following. When the pendulum is distanced from its position of equilibrium, the momentums of the elastic forces and of the forces of gravity act in opposite directions, and through a suitable adjustment, we can bring these two momentums to, to being only slightly different. Since the period is determined by the difference of these momentums, it can be said that what has been created is a system allowing for the conversion of one form of potential energy into another form of potential energy via a certain quantity of kinetic energy that is equivalent to the quantitative difference between these two potential energies. If the two potential energies that which is expressed through the momentum of elastic forces and that which is expressed through the momentum of gravitational forces were rigorously equal, the pendulum would have a period of infinite oscillation, i.e. would be in a state of indifferent equilibrium. Everything occurs as if the potential energy that is effectively converted into kinetic energy and then reconverted into potential energy during an oscillation were an energy resulting from the difference between two other potential energies. The same pendulum brought back to 180 degrees would, on the contrary, bring about an addition of two potential energies in the form of kinetic energy at the lowest point of the trajectory traversed by the chunk of quartz. All right, so I scroll back up to the uh, diagrams, which um, uh, um, are unfortunately not on the same page as the text themselves. But um, so for those of you who are watching the stream, uh, you can see um, point A is the, the lowest point of the pendulum, so the point closest to the center of the Earth. Um, and then you have points B and C are the um, maximum uh, points, the maximum distance from uh, uh, point A. Um, and then, um, so point at, at point A, uh, when the pendulum is at point A, it has um, a minimum of potential energy and a maximum of kinetic energy. Um, and then at points B and C, it has a minimum of kinetic energy and a maximum of potential energy. Um, um, so that's what, yeah, they didn't actually translate the diagram, which uh, is unfortunate. Um, 
Um, so EP max means uh, potential energy maximum. Uh, EC minimum is uh, um, is the um, kinetic energy minimum. Um, um, and yeah, so that's that's what's going on with that first pendulum. Um, um, now the second one is uh, more complicated, um, but the the idea, um, as I understand it, is that um, it has to do with the uh, period of oscillation um, um, of of um, a system of of pendulums that are uh, coupled to each other. Um, so let me just go back to the text here. Um, right. So you have. Um, uh, a flexible um, piece of, of metal, I suppose it is, um, that uh, you you have a, a a displacement of one end of the of the pendulum, um, and then you have um, force of gravity, and then the um, um, flex the flexion, the elastic forces of the um, of the pendulum itself are acting in opposite directions, so that um, you end up with um, the motion, uh, the, the the two um, momentums of the um, the gravitational force and the elastic force uh, uh, are operating uh, separately from each other, and then um, you can adjust the pendulum so that they're um, um, so that they converge towards each other, um, and then you can uh, the period of uh, the pendulum will be uh, a result of the the two um, momentums of the gravitational force and the um, elastic force. Yeah, my understanding of the my probably simplistic understanding of the inverted pendulum is just that uh, um, like gravity, gravitational force wants to pull the mass to the sides um, so that the heavy quartz is as low as possible, and then the the elastic force of the spring wants it to be straight up. So there's this tension between the two different kinds of potential energy. Yeah. So the, and there, so that's the, the sort of the mechanism is you have the, the, um, sorry, let me scroll up to the diagram again. Um, you have the, the heavy, um, quartz head, I guess, of the pendulum, um, uh, is being, once you, you displace the pendulum to the side, then that it will be, um, pulled down and outwards by gravity. Whereas the uh, flexion of the um, of the pendulum uh, of the uh, the actual um, body of the pendulum will be pulling it back towards the center, um, but the um, the um, so that's the the sort of the basic mechanism. But what he points out here is that you can adjust. Um, so I guess it would be based on the length of the pendulum. Uh, and the weight of the quartz, you can adjust um, the period of the of the flexion. Um, so um, it, the the pendulum will, if you displace one end of the pendulum, it'll sort of swing back and forth. Um, and you can adjust the period of that swing based on uh, uh, adjusting the properties of the pendulum. Um, and um, I believe this is used. Uh, so he says it has to do with the gravimetric network in France. So I, I think you can use this as a, a means of measuring gravitational force uh, if you have a known, um, uh, if you, you know the properties of the pendulum, you could use it as a, a, um, a means of measuring gravitational force. 
Um, but I'm not 100% sure if that's what this is used for. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so uh, Angus pointed out in the chat that um, oil companies used to use the, these types of pendulums to do gravimetric maps. So I guess um, depending on the density of what is underground, you would have slightly different responses of the uh, um, of the um, the pendulum. Uh, and so you can use this to um, determine what is underneath, uh, under the ground and what, where to do exploration and so on. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the the next, um, let's see. Uh, yeah, we have another long paragraph, I think. Um, uh, so if someone else would like to read that, um, and then we'll take a look at the diagrams again. Ultimately, we could constitute a more complex system of pendulums, coupled together without damping, weighted pendulums or torsion pendulums, figures three and four. In this case, we would witness beats on each pendulum, and these beats would be more spaced out according to how weak the coupling would be. These beats themselves occur in a manner of quadrature, i.e. because each of the pendulums seems to stop when the other reaches its maximum. The energy of the oscillations is transferred alternatively from one of the pendulums to the other. In a similar experiment, can we still estimate the period of the resulting oscillation? Transfer of corresponds to a determinate potential energy. Yes, because if K designates the coefficient of the coupling between the oscillators that the two pendulums constitute, and uh, omega designates the pulsation of these two pendulums, which is supposed to be the same for both, the period of the beats on two pendulums is given by the expression. Here, uh, potential energy resides in the fact that initially one of the two pendulums is animated by a movement, whereas the other pendulum is immobile. This dissymmetry is what causes the passage of energy from one pendulum to the other. If pendulums with the same appropriate frequency animated by synchronous oscillation and with the same phase, were coupled. The appropriate resulting period would not be the same as the period of the oscillation of each of the separate And yet no exchange of energy would happen. There is a beat in the case where the dissymmetry of the initial conditions of the exciter and of the resonator can be nullified and transformed into its inverse, and then uh, can return to the initial state. Uh, and that formula there was t equals 2 pi over k times, and I think that's, is that omega, the Greek letter? Yeah, so uh, let me scroll back up to the, um, the diagrams, which again are not translated, but it's pretty straightforward, um, this one at least. Um, so you have two pendulums that are uh, coupled to each other. They have uh, this uh, shared wire. Um, and um, whatever the, um, so each pendulum has its own pr uh, proper um, uh, frequency or, or period. Um, and um, uh, the coupling of the two pendulums will um, 
will cause the the two pendulums to uh, synchronize at a different period than uh, than they started with, um, and uh, so that expression uh, t over two pi uh, sorry t equals two pi over uh, k omega that gives the um, that gives the um, the period of the beats between the uh, the oscillation of the two pendulums. Um, um, so yeah, that's uh, uh, even though there's no transfer of energy from one to the other, they they still end up um, being uh, synchronized to each other. Yeah. So uh, so just to be clear, I didn't I didn't uh, state this as clearly as I should have. But yeah, so there's two different cases that are. Um, that are being discussed in this paragraph. So the one case is where you have um, the dissymmetry. So you have um, um, one pendulum in, in motion while the other one is, uh, is uh, stationary. And in that case, there is transfer of energy um, because you have that dissymmetry. Uh, and then the second case is when you have two, um, two pendulums with the same frequency um, that are synchronized, um, um, but in that case, you end up with uh, um, a different period of oscillation, uh, but no transfer of energy. One of the reasons why this, the synchronization happens is that there is a common plan. There is a, I think the guy who discovered this, I think it was Huygens, and uh, uh, he found that if, like, if the pendulums are not standing on the same platform or connected somehow by a medium, uh, they don't, you know, obviously they don't do this. So it's not like an air or some kind of pure energetic. Um, so it's interesting, I guess. I mean, my reading of that would be there needs to be some homogeneity between them. Like some, there needs to be some conduit, as it were, that can transfer, I guess in this case, it's a, there's a kinetic, uh, kinetic energy. Um, so it's interesting. It seems like, uh, at least, I mean, if that's, if that's true, then some like homogeneity and heterogeneity have some kind of dynamic. Yeah. The, the homogeneity, um, um, is the, the necessary condition for there to be a system in the first place. Um, and then the heterogeneity is the necessary condition for um, the transformation to occur within that system. Um, so both of them are, are necessary for, um, for there to be a, a system undergoing transformation. Okay, so let's go on to the next couple paragraphs to the end of the, of the subsection here. Uh, someone else would like to read? Um, we could multiply the increasingly complex cases of energetic exchanges we would find that the poten that potential energy always seems to be bound to a system's state of dissymmetry. In this sense, a system contains potential energy when it is not in its state of greatest stability. When this initial dissymmetry produces an exchange of energy within the system, the modification produced can be transformed into another form of energy. In this case, the system does not immediately return to its initial state. For it to return there, for it to return there, the preceding transformation would need to be reversible. In such a case, the system oscillates. 
This oscillation establishes the equality of two forms of potential energy. Thus, we can already distinguish the identity of two energetic states from the equality of two energetic states in the case of potential energy. Two potential energies are identical when they correspond to the same physical state of the system, with merely a difference of measurements that could be suppressed by a suitable displacement of the axes of reference. Therefore, when the pendulum of figure one oscillates, it establishes the reciprocal convertibility of the potential energy corresponding to position B and of the potential energy corresponding to position C. Since the measurement of potential energy of the Earth pendulum, pendulum system only depends on the position of mass M with respect to the equipotential surfaces, which are in this case horizontal planes. The determination of position B or position C only depends on the direction chosen for the measurement of elongation. The inversion of this relation makes it possible to identify the physical states corresponding to states B and C for the measurement of potential energy. By contrast, let's consider the example of the Holwick-Leger pendulum. It is no longer possible to identify through a simple displacement of the conventions of measurement the states of potential energy corresponding to the couplings of the forces of gravity and those corresponding to the elastic forces that come from the bending of the Ellen bar wire. The oscillation, however, establishes the reciprocal convertibility of these two forms of energy, and this leads us to consider them as equal when the pendulum state of indifferent equilibrium is found to be realized. Potential energy defines the real formal conditions of the state of a system. So I think the key takeaway of this uh, subsection is the bit that uh, in the first paragraph that we just read um, that's italicized um, that um, potential energy always appears as uh, tied to the uh, state of dissymmetry of a system. Um, um, so there, there's always, um, it's only when there's that dissymmetry within a system that there's potential energy. Um, so that's the, the sort of key um, thesis of this subsection. So can I ask, um, I, I might be remembering this wrong, there's an aspect when he's talking about individuation and transduction like earlier on in the book. Um, I don't know if he uses the word reversibility, but there's a way that he's distinguishing, um, like thinking about our earlier discussion of dialectics and stuff, um, he's distinguishing different methods and he's talking about the problem of, you know, sort of thinking in dialectically in stages involves sort of the negation of information and sort of the, the removal of previous states. Whereas what's happening in his account is that things are preserved and, and if anything, they, they only grow, you know, this, so this reminds me of the, the Bergsonian thing we've talked about in that class of, you know, how could the, the thing, the result be sort of greater than or larger than the thing which caused it. You know, it was previously thought it always had to be in reverse or else it's like violating scientific laws. So I'm just thinking here when he's talking about reversibility, if I'm not wrong about that, is it that he's talking about reversibility purely on the level of sort of the, the distribution of energies? So if we go back to the, the clay example and the homogeneity of like the, the, the surface or the, the colloidal properties that allow there to be the, the even distribution of work throughout it. So in that case, the, the, the reversibility there refers to the, the ability of that, like basically the internal, rather than, because uh, in, in principle, you, you can't reverse 
like the individuation that occurs, right? That that's isn't that that's kind of like the part point or the you know the crystal or any other kind of individuation is that the there's no uh, sort of just undoing the terms and sort of starting again from the beginning. It's that the original terms are still there, sort of like conserved in the center as the seed grows, you know, outwards. I don't know if, if I'm making sense here, but I, I, basically the way my mind works when I see terms that I feel I've seen elsewhere, I latch onto it and I'm trying to make a difference so that I can understand it. Yeah, so here he's talking about uh, reversibility when, so this reversibility um, is a particular property of these systems, these oscillating systems like the pendulum uh, or the sets of pendulums. Um, so it's only in a system that, that does have the property of reversibility. So the pendulum swings one way and then it can swing back to its initial state. Um, uh, only systems that have this property of reversibility will be oscillating systems that will produce some sort of uh, uh, regular repeated phenomenon, uh, whether it's you know swinging a pendulum or, or um, I don't know, uh, pulses of electricity or whatever it is. Um, um, and, and so, yeah, this is particular to, to these types of systems that he's describing here. Um, um, are they capable of individuation? Hmm. My guess or my inclination would be to say no, um, just because the, uh, that process of transformation, uh, um, uh, because it's reversible, it it's not uh, it doesn't result in something like an individual. Um, uh, so there's no um, yeah, there's no individuation process because it, uh, it it there's nothing that is sort of maintained after the transformation has come about. Uh, the the transformation can just be reversed uh, in the other phase of of the oscillation. I'm interested in uh, a couple of distinctions that. So one of them is the one between identity and quality we see. And uh, it seems like, I, so the passage is, thus we can already distinguish between, distinguish the identity of two energetic states from the equality of two energetic states in the case of energy. Um, and it, it seems like identity is, I mean, when you have, when two states are identical, it seems like they're really the same state. And it's just a matter of, we're framing it in terms of different coordinates, but it's just a, it's just a kind of difference of language, not a, not a difference of, you know, the things themselves. And it seems like equality actually gets to the things themselves. So there is a, an actual distinction there. Um, so that's interesting how, you know, it's it's almost like equality is ontological and identity is just logical. It's just a kind of playing with words and, or with expression. Um, and it was reminding me of, there's a distinction earlier that he kind of just throws in there between relation and rapport. I don't know if people uh, notice that. So this was right before the pendulums. Um, and it seems like it's getting to something similar. Again, like maybe like a rapport seems to be more surface and relation seems to be something ontological. 
Yeah, he um, he introduced that terminology in the introduction, I believe, uh, the um, uh, rapport and relation. So uh, relation is what has the status of being. Uh, so it's uh, ontological, as you said, uh, whereas a rapport is a um, an external relation or, or something that is um, uh, logical, like you said. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's... Um, uh, just a, a, a sort of terminological stipulation from him um, that he uh, he set out in the introduction, uh, and it comes up, you know, a few times uh, over the course of the work. Um, and then also, yeah, so go, so going to that um, distinction between the identity and uh, equality of um, um, uh, of uh, states of potential energy. So in the case of the pendulum, the first one when we had the um, um, the points B and C that are the two extreme points, um, those two states are identical from the perspective of the potential energy of the system because they, they're just mirror images of each other. So you can just um, transform one state to the other just by starting your measurement from, from one position versus the other one. Uh, so it, it's purely... Um, uh, a question of your frame of reference for your measurements uh, that determines whether you, you count something as as position B or position C. Uh, so so those two states are or or those two measurements are identical uh, considered as states of the system uh, of potential energy. Um, but then he he points to uh, the alternate example um, in that second pendulum, the inverted pendulum. Um, in this case, you have um, um, uh, two different um, states of the system that are equivalent um, or that are equal, um, but not identical. So there's no transformation uh, of the frame of reference that can convert one to the other, but because they can equalize uh, physically, they can, uh, they can be in equilibrium with each other. Um, you can uh, measure those two states as being uh, as being equal. Um, so, yeah, that's the difference between the identity, which is always relative to a frame of reference, uh, and then the equality, which is a, a physical relation between these two states. Right. Okay. So let's uh, go on to the next um, couple paragraphs in the next subsection. Uh, if someone else would like to read. Section two, different orders of potential energy, notions of phase changes and of the stable and metastable equilibrium of a state. Uh, Tamman's theory. The potential energies of the three physical systems we have contemplated can be said to belong to the same order, not merely because they are mutually convertible during one of the system's periods of oscillation, but also because this conversion occurs continuously. It is this very continuity of conversion that permits the latter to be in oscillation in the proper sense of the term, i.e. to be effectuated according to a sinusoidal law in terms of time. It is indeed necessary to rigorously distinguish between a veritable oscillation during which there is a conversion of one form of energy into another form of energy, which defines a period depending on the potentials in question and on the system's inertia and a mere recurrent phenomenon during which a phenomenon that is 
non-recurrent by itself, like the discharge of a capacitor through a resistance, unleashes its occurrence, in its occurrence, another phenomenon that brings the system back to its initial state. The latter case is that of phenomena of relaxation, which are called, perhaps misleadingly, oscillations, oscillations of relaxation, the most contemporary examples of which are found in electronics and oscillator assemblages utilizing thyrotrons or in multivibrators or even in naturally occurring geysers. Um, nevertheless, if the existence of veritable oscillations in physical systems can allow us to define those energies that can be submitted to reversible transformations and therefore can be equaled by their quantity as potential energies that are equivalent in terms of their form, there are also systems in which an irreversibility of transformations manifests a difference of order between potential energies. The most well-known irreversibility is the one illustrated by the research of thermodynamics and what the second principle of this science, Carnot's principle, states concerning the successive transformations of a closed system. According to this principle, the entropy of a system increases in the course of successive transformations. The theory of the theoretical maximum efficiency of heat engines conforms to this principle and verifies it to the extent that a theory can be validated by the fruitfulness of the consequences that can be drawn from it. But this irreversibility of the transformations of mechanical energy into caloric energy is perhaps not the only irreversibility that exists. Furthermore, the apparently hierarch hierarchical aspect implied in this rapport of a noble form to a degraded form of energy runs the risk of obscuring the very, the very nature of this irreversibility. Here we are dealing with a change in the order of magnitude and the number of systems in which this energy exists. In fact, energy may not change in nature, yet its order may change. This is what happens when the kinetic energy of a body in movement is transformed into heat, as in the example often cited in physics of a lead bullet colliding with an undeformable plane and transforming all of its energy into heat. The quantity of kinetic energy remains the same, but what the bullet's energy was in its entirety, considered with respect to the axes of reference for which the undeformable plane is immobile, becomes the energy of each traveling molecule relative to the other molecules within the bullet. What has changed is the structure of the physical system. If this structure could be transformed in the inverse direction, the transformation of energy would also become reversible. Here, irreversibility stems from the passage of a unified macroscopic structure to a fragmented and disorganized microscopic structure. The, order, the notion of disorder further expresses microphysical fragmentation itself. If molecular displacements were truly organized, the system would in fact be unified. The macroscopic system formed by the bullet in movement relative to an undeformable plane and by this plane can be considered as an organized set of molecules animated by parallel movements. An organized microscopic system, in fact, has a macroscopic structure.
Yeah, I actually hadn't read ahead to this part, but this feels like it's directly answered the question I had. So this is really helpful. It, it seems to me like this is this. It's back to the question of magnitudes of order that in in the crystallization example that it is precisely because of the, the switch between order and magnitude that it's that it's irreversible. That's like that seems to me kind of what what he's getting at. Yeah, the um, the irreversibility is always um, uh, a result of the difference of order of magnitude. Um, so in the case of the bullet striking the, the wall um, um, uh, and then all the, all the energy of the bullet is transformed into heat, um, um, you have uh, um, a coherent macrophysical system which is uh, in motion uh, together, um, which is then transformed into a fragmented microphysical system where each component or each molecule is uh, in motion relative to all the others. Um, so you, you pass from uh, a higher order of magnitude to a lower order of magnitude. I don't know if he'll get to this, but do, do, do you think it replies the other way around as well, from a smaller order to a larger order, if, if it is even possible to distinguish these things not happening simultaneously, just sort of like in his logic. Yeah, taking to the the, the question just now, like in, a re, in, in terms of irreversibility, I'm wondering like a simulation is following linearity of time, like uh, just like Uh, we lost you, Holly. Oh, sorry. I just thought I was moving Tenet. So the, the explanation here is fantastic, but at the same time, it's just like following linearity of time, temporality. Yeah, I think for Simon Don, the linearity of time is a result of the um, um, of the um, process of individuation and of the transformation of the system more generally. Um, so he, he does, he makes sort of allusions to this in the introduction, but um, time, he, he argues that time is a result of the, the uh, dephasing of uh, the pre-individuated being. Um, and so in this case, um, time is the result of the, um, of the transformation of the system. Um, so rather than starting from linear time and then having transformations occur in it, um, it's the other way around. It's that transformations uh, produce time. So uh, sorry, sorry uh, for my ignorance of physics, but the, uh, even though Simongdong uh, was engineer, so I mean, he must have known better than me. But at this moment, I think in 1950s, I think he was stick, stuck to like bound to, bound to, uh, bound to the thermodynamics than the quantum physics. So actually his explanation makes sense, but at the same time, like there could be more possibility. Maybe we can discuss this one uh, further later, but uh, just a quick thought about this. Yeah, I think this will come up more when we get to, uh, um, I think it's the next chapter, um, when we talk about quantum physics, um, and uh, and relativity as well, um, um, and and so the notions of time 
will um, uh, will come up there. Thank you. Very helpful. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on something. I think Alyosha was raising this earlier. Um, I am wondering about the difference between the um, veritable oscillation versus the recur the merely recurrent phenomenon. And so the veritable oscillation is seems to be defined by a conversion of one form of energy to another. And I guess I'm trying to understand how that is connected. I guess we established that that would be linked to these multiple orders or different orders of magnitude. And uh, I'm trying to sort of understand, like if we go back to the um, that uh, pendulum, the second pendulum, I don't remember the name of it, but uh, the one where we have a con veritable conversion, it seems, right, between, uh, I, th I guess it's kinetic and gravitational uh, energies. I guess I'm trying to, um, yeah, I'm not even, I'm not really sure where in that example the conversion is becoming manifest. Like, uh, you know, uh, like it's hard for me to sort of point to the phenomenon and wondering if anybody has any hints. In the pendulum examples, uh, Aldrin's? Uh, for example, yeah. I mean, any example, I guess, would, would work. As I understand it, it's uh, like in the in the case of the first pendulum, like the simple uh, single pendulum that's not inverted, uh, the potential energy is converted into kinetic energy as it goes from like the the extreme back down to the middle, which is then gradually converted to potential energy again as it reaches the other extreme. And that might be the reversibility. I'm not sure if other people agree. So basically, energy there is manifested in uh, motion, basically, right? So I guess we have the maximum kinetic energy when the velocity is the greatest. And then minimum kinetic, when the pendulum basically comes to like an instantaneous stop, right? Uh, but then at that point, it has the most potential. Yeah, that's, that's my understanding of the... Um, how that conversion works in that uh, pendulum. Yeah, I, I don't understand capacitors, but it seems like this capacitor example contrast to the pendulum because it seems like that veritable oscillation requires there to be a kind of the energies are being reconverted back into each other in a sense back and forth continuously versus what, what sounds like he's describing uh, that, like another process can be triggered that then returns the original uh i don't know what are you saying he's saying the capacitor here but returns things to an initial system state but that that doesn't happen through sort of like the same energy being reconverted back but another phenomenon maybe somebody who's an engineer can explain better but i would imagine if you the pendulum example doesn't work because there's it just kind of keeps going back and forth unless you had another force you know like a rube goldberg machine that's triggered that then sends something back to the pendulums that would kind of mess up the continual process. Like, I don't know, a firework. <laughs> I'm not sure.
Yeah, yeah. I think um, what you put in the chat, Alyosha, I think that's right. Um, is that so? In the oscillations, though, in in the case of the pendulum, you have the same energy that's being converted from uh, potential to kinetic energy uh, back and forth. Um, uh, of course, in real cases, you would have friction, and so you would uh, um, eventually you would uh, the oscillation would stop. Um, but in the ideal case, you just have um, uh, the same energy becoming potential and kinetic back and forth. Um, um, whereas in the case, so he, he mentions just sort of in passing, he mentions these um, natural fountains. Um, and so that's, that's a, an instance of this relaxation process. So it's um, in, in those fountains, you have a buildup of some sort of gas uh, in uh, underwater um, uh, and then once it reaches a certain threshold, it, it, uh, you know, pushes the pressure reaches a certain threshold. It, it pushes the water up into the air, um, and then, uh, uh, allowing the, the water out or, or that, that sort of explosion of, of the gas, uh, reduces the pressure again, and then the pressure will build up, uh, again and, you know, produce another explosion, um, but it's not is not um, the same energy that's passing back and forth. It's uh, there's a constant input of of the gas that's leaking from a, a cave underground or something like that. Um, so it's a uh, it's a uh, uh, even though you have the something that looks similar in terms of uh, um, a recurring phenomenon, uh, you know, coming back to the same state, it's produced in a different way by uh, a, a constant input. Um, so that's that's how I understand the difference between these uh, oscillators and uh, relaxation systems. So constant input is important, right? Constant input. So, yeah, yeah. The question was like uh, in terms of kinetic kinetic energy and then potential energy. So where does it come from? So what I mean is like in terms of the potential energy and the why and how. The thing was there, and then how does it have that energy? And in terms of how can it be possible to have constant input, something like that? Yeah, there can so there can only be that constant input in uh, in an open system. So um, uh, a system that is receiving energy from um, from uh, from outside. Um, so that's. Uh, um, a necessary condition for there to be something like a relaxation system is that it's a it's an open system. Whereas an oscillator, uh, in the ideal case, could be a closed system um, where it would um, uh, it would keep oscillating back and forth uh, um, without any input of energy from without. I guess I'm trying to understand. Um, I'm wondering maybe taking a, a step back a little bit, uh, how this is going to be relevant. And I guess, I mean, I'm sure he'll come to this in later in this chapter. Uh, but uh, it seems to me like, so ultimately the significance of all this will be, uh, will have to do with ontogenesis, right? And this heterogeneity of energy, of potential energies would be, Really, the kind of that's how he's going to define metastability. It seems 
and um, uh, and so because he does say at the opening in the opening sentence, I think it was that you know in physics energy is not really or I think it was potential energy is not really well defined, and I suppose ontogenesis will be the kind of milieu where for him energy really makes sense or it's kind of like that's where potential energy really fits um so yeah i'm just wondering about sort of the shape of the argument yeah so as we'll um we'll, we'll see this in more um uh uh, we'll, we'll get a better picture of, of the arguments as we continue um, next week, I think, uh, because he's going to um, get into um, transformations of state of, of, uh, of matter from liquid to solid and, and back and forth and so on. Um, and so he's going to um, uh, come back to that crystallization example that, um, that he introduced in, in the introduction. Um, and that's one of his sort of favorite examples. Um, he's going to explain that in terms of um, uh, uh, potential energy um, and uh, the relation between uh, uh, the potential energy contained in the system and, and the transformation that comes about through crystallization. So yeah, we'll, we'll see the structure of the argument more next week. Yeah, I was just highlighting this last sentence key here that an organized microscopic microscopic system in fact has a macroscopic structure that seems to be getting into all of the all the questions we've been talking about uh, in terms of orders of magnitude disparation the relationship of individual and milieu uh, the relationship of individual to uh you know the, the pre-individual state that produces it like i feel like that's a theme that's going to keep coming up um yeah so i think we can uh, leave it there for today um and then we'll pick up um, from there next time, and um, we'll learn a lot more about crystallization, more than you probably ever wanted to know. But uh, uh, there's a lot of detail um, um, about how the crystalliz crystallization process works. Um, so that's that's going to be fun. So thank you, everyone, for uh, your participation, and um, see you all next week.